You're listening to The Mumbrella Cast. The Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to The Mumbrella Cast. I'm Damien Francis and joining me to break down the week in media and marketing, Mr. Tim Burrows. Hello, Damien. Olivia Crimmel. Hi, Damien. And Xander Wilson. G'day, g'day. Later in the Mumbrella cast and with the Olympics now underway, Xander will be chatting with Seven Network Sales Director Natalie Harvey about the impact of advertiser uncertainty around whether the Games would go ahead. Yeah, I think that we have seen a pretty late run. Uh, The last six to seven weeks have been huge. Uh, So we're in a better position than where we were at the same time in the lead into the Rio Olympics. The role television's new measurement currency, Voz, will play. The insight we're going to get into consumption behaviour will be something that we've never seen before. And what the various Australian lockdowns could do for audience numbers. Because we'll see people at home all day, productivity potentially at an all-time low, except at the Seven Network where we'll be working very hard. But first, the week's topics. TV titan David Leckie dies aged 70. PwC releases its latest Australian Entertainment and Media Outlook report and... Seven in the spotlight with Katie Hopkins' scandal and the start of the Olympics. Australian television legend David Leckie has died at age 70, his family revealing he passed away after suffering a long illness. Leckie was the former boss of both Nine and Seven, seeing both networks to substantial success. He was also one of the strongest characters in the media industry. Tim, when you arrived in Australia, uh, he would have been leading uh, Seven West Media at that stage. Uh, what sort of a difference did he make to to that network in particular? Yeah, look, I suppose David Leckie was really a, a career in two acts, his career with Nine and then his career with Seven. Um, you know, he had great success under Kerry Packer until they they fell out and the the... I suppose the catalyst of him leaving Nine was the change in the the rating system, the move across to uh, Oztam, which Leckie had agreed to, and you know Nine didn't do as well in the ratings as it had in the old system, and you know there'd obviously been other tensions as well, but that saw him leave Nine and be kind of you know a bit bit adrift for a while, but then Kerry Stokes picked him up, brought him to Seven and delivered massive success for Seven. You know, he kind of became well-known as somebody who would spot executive talent. So he was the one who brought James Warburton across from the media agency world, for instance, to to lead sales at Seven, um, developing locally, local programming. Um, so, you know, one of the pieces of local programming that got Seven back on track was Dancing with the Stars. Um, and he'd be, you know, he'd have a, be famously have a good instinct for that sort of content. And also um, he had a share of luck as well. So the the fact that the kind of the ABC Disney studio deal delivered as he was doing the turnaround um, in a single season, Lost and Desperate Housewives, I think they got Grey's Anatomy as well, um, all came together to help Seven overtake Nine, which had been the one for years. So look, so that was that was him at his best, and he was you know bombastic and and loud, but also you know you 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 talked to people who knew him and said he was also kind of a bit shy and insecure at the same time, like like many of these complicated people. Um, but yeah, what strikes me though is 
you know, I've been here about 15 years. So he, he obviously passed away at the age of 70. Um, and by the time, certainly by the time I was around, his presence was fading a bit, um, which, you know, I suppose it was kind of really put in contrast during, um, during the court case when James Warburton left seven to go and take charge of 10. And then there was a battle over um, James's notice period, which meant that a lot of the final months between James and Leckie and Kerry Stokes all played out in court. And it became clear that, um, you know, his, at that point, difficult relationship with alcohol was affecting his performance and his relationships. And that's the real shame, I suppose, is that, you know, his his ill health at that final stage in his career meant that he left the stage probably too soon. You know, he could have, in another circumstance, had another 10 years at the top of the television game if that's what he wanted. So that, that I suppose, is the, is the tragedy that, um, you know, he's... He's still a, a hugely famous name, you know, just seeing the reaction of the, the TV industry as a whole this week. But you also get people sort of, you know, newer into the industry who who weren't quite sure what, who he was because he'd, he'd stepped away a few years back, um, which is a, a shame because he probably had more to give than he was able to in his final few years. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because uh, particularly people of my age, I'm in my late 30s and and I grew up watching Channel 9 as they used that uh, catchphrase, still the one, which, uh, of course, uh, Leckie was essentially responsible for, you know, being at 9 and uh, revitalising it as such to become the the power player it was during during that period. Uh, And, you know, one of the people who could... uh, as some of the reports were saying, stare down Kerry Packer and take him on toe to uh, toe. But uh, very few people, Tim, could <laughs> no people really could say that they managed to to revitalise two major networks in their career like Leckie has done. He really is one of the all-time great power players of the Australian media industry. Yeah, look, and I think he'll be he'll be remembered that way, you know, because in the end the scores on the doors count, you know, he, um, he made two media moguls very rich in, uh, Kerry Packer and then, uh, in Kerry Stokes. There were some pretty wild stories as well about him in terms of, you know, his character and, and the way he dealt with, uh, people, you know, giving them the time of day, but also making sure everyone knew what his opinion was, yeah, you know, out of the times that you've had to report on on Leckie and the things going on uh, around uh, him and his leadership teams, what are the the biggest ones that that you recall? Well, look again. Remember, I, I by the time I came along, he was beginning to vanish from sight a little bit. So um, the. <sighs> It was mostly historic, I suppose. You know, the, the 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 great, you know, the the big anecdotes were already in the past. But you know, he was famous for if he liked an executive or someone who worked for him, then he would, you know, he would absolutely 
tell them what he thought if they hadn't achieved, but back them and be very loyal to them. But then if it was, you know, a rival executive from another, an, another company, he would, he would deliberately get their name wrong every single time in interviews and stuff. And, you know, there were a few anecdotes around Grant Blackley that happening to, for instance, you know, so he would always use a, diff- a slightly different name or slightly get it wrong. So he played that sort of game as well. Yeah, and I just wanted to chip in there and 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 say one of the interesting things I found, obviously uh, not being someone that was covering the media for for the for most of of David Leckie's career, I'm too young for that. But having covered radio for for the last four or five years, um, it was interesting to see that after Leckie passed away, some some a lot of people in in radio and other industries paid tribute to him. Um, so while Brad March. Uh, you know, famously took Osterio to the to the top of the ratings across multiple networks. Um, you know, he he posted a tribute on his on his Facebook page and and socials, saying that that Lecky was someone that he really tried to emulate in in the way that he led those radio networks. And and there are obviously parallels in the way that you lead big radio networks and big television networks. So yeah, I, I thought it was really interesting to see you know that perhaps his impact was. Was was beyond what the public saw of him and 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 the people that were inspired by him to to sort of emulate the way he led uh, his own media companies and and you know we may still continue to see people who 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 grew up and got into their industries being inspired by him. Uh, Warburton was one person that in his comment after after Lecky died saying saying that he was the reason he got into TV. So um, I think his legacy will 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 see live on. Coming up next, PwC's latest Australian Entertainment and Media Outlook report. This week, PwC released the 20th edition of the Australian Entertainment and Media Outlook 2021 to 2025, a report that was created entirely in a global pandemic. The Mumbrella team covered the report extensively with key findings on the state of the gaming industry, print media, online advertising and television, as well as content consumption and creation post-pandemic. Not that we're quite there yet, unfortunately. But uh, Liv, uh, who does PwC think is going to be uh, one of the biggest winners in, in the coming years? Yes, Damien, uh, last year saw almost every part of the entertainment and media sector had to uh, refine or adapt their business models, pivots also being the other word, in light of the new consumer behaviours that were amplified by the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, COVID brought forward a lot of these adaptations and have created new revenue streams for those that are prepared to experiment or replace old existing ones. One of the few winners off the back was internet advertising, not surprisingly, which saw a 3.3% increase as advertisers looked for ways to stay top of mind with consumers who were spending even more time on their screens and devices during the lockdowns, etc. That industry is expected to grow at 5.5% over the forecast period to $12.4 billion by 2025 based on PwC's forecasts. Um, not surprisingly, SVOD and BVOD also saw revenue increases either via uh, increase of subscribers or via additional advertising revenue. However, the question remains as to that segment about the total opportunity for the market as it's becoming increasingly competitive. And it's likely that households will have a cap on the number of options that they are willing to subscribe to 
um, especially as there are increased competition coming uh, from both local and global players. And lastly, the uh, interactive games and esport market also had a good 12 months. Um, by 2025, it's expected to grow to 6.8% of the market, making it one of the sectors with the highest growth rate. Dare I ask uh, any of the biggest losers that you care to mention? Well, again, not surprisingly, uh, TV, radio, outdoor and uh, newspapers and or print uh, publications such as newspapers and magazines struggled throughout the year and, and the worst hit was obviously cinema. Now, uh, we spend a lot of time reporting on the numbers because that's the what the report's famous for, but uh, at the very beginning it also uh, mentioned uh, what it called five major power shifts reshaping the landscape um, and suggesting that it would lead to new business models. Can you give us a little bit of a, a rundown of what these five major power shifts are that the industry has apparently got to be aware of because of these new business models? Yeah, there is there is definitely a shift in the market. Um, the main ones that the report cites are more power to consumers, uh, more power to creators and originators, and higher expectations in terms of consumption in uh, in terms of where and when, and then lastly, regulatory shifts um, in terms of. Uh, both market power and privacy, as we've seen in recent times with changes to the uh, uh, media bargaining code and also upcoming changes uh, with regards to cookies. Um, These overarching power shifts are driving change across all segments and it's going to continue as that migration to digital consumption continues. Um, Obviously, as people have more devices, more options, Uh, are expecting to have more choice when it comes to when, where, how, how much they're willing to pay. That's going to continue to change the dynamics for advertising, marketing and media. Xander, we also uh, spoke about TV just briefly then. It's been a bit of a a TV podcast uh, so far and we'll continue in in that fashion shortly when you speak with uh, Nat Harvey. But a couple of surprises that came out of the TV uh, sector of the report. Yeah, um, I, I guess the only surprise to add on to, to what Liv was was already speaking about was to, to see the numbers behind uh, Foxtel's subscription services. So, so while their their you know main subscription TV box service um, continues to decline, um, that decline was actually offset in in growth in subscribers across KO and Binge, and and Foxtel had a twelve percent subscriber growth growth overall. And and as we have mentioned on previous podcasts, we're expecting Newsflash to, to drop as their third streaming service in Q4. So we could see that growth continue. In the less surprising side of it, um, for the free-to-air TV market fell 9.8% uh, in revenue throughout 2020. BVOD was up significantly, up 38.8%. Um, but but sort of nowhere near enough to offset sort of the uh, the overall still continuing decline of of free to air TV in Australia, unfortunately. Yeah, and Tim, I mentioned at the start of the of the segment that this was the the twentieth report. Um, I've, I remember reporting on it extensively. God, almost ten years ago, back in the ad news days, you've clearly uh, reported on a number of uh, these PwC outlooks. Um, yeah, how does this one compare to, to previous uh, reports? Look, a couple of thoughts. One is, and maybe this is just 
the nature of the pandemic, it seemed to land with far less impact than previous years. You know, didn't make as much of a ripple. Um, it feels like in previous years, it was far more forward looking. Um, this time, it really feels like a bit of a report on where we've been rather than necessarily where we're going. And I remember talking to one executive who made a bit of an investment in esports based on seeing Megan Brownlow, who was the author of the report for a number of years, do a really compelling presentation at Mumbrella 360, in which she talked about the coming growth of esports. And, you know, it, it strikes me that th- this report was something which you you could almost make investment decisions on or certainly know where you needed to develop your knowledge. Um, Now it feels a bit more like a school report on the year just gone. I do wonder if PwC maybe risks losing its market leading position when it comes to expertise on media and entertainment, unless it starts developing a bit of a thesis about where we're going again. Yeah, that's a good point that we've seen a, a bit of a leadership change in the people directing that report from Megan Brownlow, uh, of course, who's now moved on. But uh, speaking of moving on, we've got to do the same thing. Uh, coming up next, Xander is going to speak with Seven's Natalie Harvey. Didn't catch the news? This year's Mumbrella Awards is streaming online next Thursday, July 29 at 4pm Australian Eastern Standard Time. With a total of 31 categories up for grabs, tune in and see who is crowned industry champion across media, marketing, advertising, PR and production. You can go to mumbrella.com.au forward slash Mumbrella Awards to register your free e-ticket now. Welcome to this week's MumbrellaCast interview. I'm Xander Wilson, and this week I'm joined by Seven's Director of Sales, Natalie Harvey, ahead of what's being billed as the most anticipated Olympic Games in history. Nat, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So obviously the Tokyo Olympics are just a few days away, and and by the time this podcast goes out, it will be just over 24 hours until the opening ceremony. Can you believe it's come round this quickly? Oh, yes and no. I think... It's been about five years that we've been waiting for this moment. Um, The last 12 months have gone surprisingly quick, though, so I'm super excited to watch the opening ceremony, what will be tomorrow night, um, and see Tokyo really turn it on. It's going to be fantastic. A great moment for us as a business, uh, for our partners and sponsors, and also for Australians who are looking for a little bit of light in what is quite a dark time at the moment, um, especially in Sydney and Melbourne. Yeah, and we were just chatting just before we started recording. You said it's a bit of a different feeling this time around not being there, not having too many of the team on the ground, I guess. Um, how's it, how has it been different for you guys in your preparation? Yeah, I think we've had to make some significant changes from a production perspective. Uh, normally we'd have a pretty big cohort going over there, um, but it's a very trimmed down version of what we would normally have at, on ground at an Olympics uh, and from a sales perspective in terms of my team, um, you know, this is a career highlight for a lot of people to work on events such as the Tokyo Olympics. And I've been at Seven now for touch over six years and my favourite time was in the Rio Olympics um, and watching the Olympics on the screens of Seven and the team are just so excited and the energy is fantastic. 
So we've missed a little bit of that build up with, um, you know, half the team in lockdown across Sydney and Melbourne. So we're finding other ways to have that joyous moments um, together in the lead up because it has been five years in the making. Um, and for us, it doesn't actually stop at the closing ceremony. There's um, so much more exciting moments that come after the Olympics for us, which um, I can't wait, actually. Yeah, and there's obviously a lot of sponsors and 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 that sort of thing on board in the lead up to it. Um, something that I'll just briefly touch on. There's obviously been some negative coverage in the media over the weekend regarding potential Big Brother VIP housemates, particularly Katie Hopkins. Are you concerned at all about how advertisers and sponsors might react to this sort of coverage this close to the Olympics? Uh, we don't comment on our casting choices and and specifically with what you've called out there. Um, but the, the interest in the Olympics has been at an all-time high. Um, even just this week, we've seen even more interest from new advertisers coming into the market that have just committed even just this week. Um, so uh, I'll leave it there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you mentioned there there's still advertisers coming on board. I spoke with Kurt Burnett at the 100 Days Out event and more recently I caught up with Nicole Bentz and Luke Smith to chat about the advent- advertising inventory that's still left to be bought and you mentioned there that people are still buying it. How's the uptake been in recent weeks and months? Is it Has it sort of been as they they predicted getting close to it, you know, people are going, oh, crap, I'd be- better grab some? Yeah, I think that we have seen a pretty late run. Uh, The last six to seven weeks have been huge. Uh, So we're in a better position than where we were at the same time in the lead into the Rio Olympics um, as a marker for such a big event. I think with audiences being challenged by fragmentation, that brands are looking for opportunities to reach mass audiences and to get that high-velocity reach Um, in a trusted and brand safe space. So the Olympics appeals to so many different brands. We've got clients spending, you know, $5,000 all the way up to millions of dollars um, to be part of the event. So I expect to see even more brands get involved over the next two and a half weeks, actually. It doesn't stop. We we usually um, have people calling in the middle of the event to try and get on and to be part of it. Yeah, and do you think any part of the fact that that run was quite late this time around had anything to do with people being concerned over over COVID and whether whether the games would go ahead? And and now that it's very clear that it will, you're really seeing that that come through. I would say yes, absolutely. I think there was some what we would call a chunky booking um, that waited until we got closer to the time. Um, we did have strong forwards even back in, I would say, January. So uh, we kind of plan out where we need to be at certain points of time. Um, and we've been sitting ahead of that uh, all the way through, but we certainly saw a huge surge, as I said, over the last kind of six or seven weeks um, of, of brands looking to be part of it because of the positivity that the event brings. We look at the Olympics as it's not just a sporting event, it's a huge cultural moment. And I think that brands are looking for more and more ways to be able to connect with audiences and there's less and less opportunity, um, certainly from a mass media perspective. Yeah, and when I spoke with Nicole and Luke um, last month or the month before, uh, they were sort of speaking about the fact that, you know, it's so segmented the way that you can buy around these Olympics. Are you seeing, I guess, a broader range of advertisers, you think, this time around? Oh, absolutely. When you see, I'm assuming you're going to be watching a lot of Olympics uh, once we go live. Um, Actually, by the time this podcast goes live, we would have already had some Olympic content on seven with uh, softball and women's football that actually goes in day minus two, which was Wednesday. 
Um, I think you'll see that there's a lot of brands in there that you wouldn't normally see on television as a start, not just on seven, but just in in television. Um, And the connected television opportunity that sits there has also attracted some new brands as well and some digital first brands that are also um, leading with BVOD and 7 Plus and television is the support. So we've seen clients come in in different ways and leverage the platforms um, to what suits their objectives, which... Rio was the first digital and social Olympics, full digital and social Olympics, and we've seen that just explode um, with fragmentation of audiences and looking at CTV uh, and the amount of content that we can put on our screens. If you think back to um, even Beijing or Sydney Olympics, we would have one broadcast channel um, and we would curate that depending on what we thought Australians wanted to watch, and a lot of that would be Australian gold medal moments. Now, Australia is quite a multicultural society and people want to be able to see the events and the athletes that they want to see. So on telly, we'll have two channels, seven and seven mate, and then on digital, we'll have up to 43 other channels running at once. So it's never been more accessible for brands. We, we talk about Tokyo as being the most addressable and most accessible Olympics from a viewer perspective and also for brands. Yeah, and do you think that um, because the scale is quite big, is it harder for advertisers to sort of fully understand what's on offer? And and are you anticipating that that once perhaps they see the numbers coming through from the first week, that there might be even more uptake in, in some of these events that they might not have thought about getting involved in? I think when it comes to digital audiences, if there's an audience there, there would be ads served there. So even though you'll find that sometimes brands want to go after the the typical major Australian moments, so that might be Kate Campbell swimming for gold or Ariane Titmus taking on Katie Ledecky, uh, you will also find there's great moments in unexpected areas. I think back to 2016 with Chloe Esposito winning the Modern Pentathlon, I think there's some research out there that shows that Google searches for modern pentathlon went crazy um, in that 15 minutes where we we put that on and she won the gold medal. It's fantastic. I still remember that so vividly. Um, So I think that we'll find that brands will understand a bit better around what the total audience story is. We'll be reporting on that on a daily basis, obviously, with overnight ratings where live television um, and viewing through CTV will still be very important. And then with Voz, we'll be looking for new insights to be able to find different viewing habits and interesting data points that we can use for optimising in games, um, but also post games as well, because the insight we're going to get into consumption behaviour will be something that we've never seen before, which is, um, I guess, plays into what we're looking to do as a business in terms of convergence beyond Tokyo as well. Yeah, and I definitely want to get into Voz shortly, but you do mention there the up to 43 digital channels available on 7 Plus, which is um, obviously uh, hugely substantial. And there were some predictions sort of in the millions on of how many subscribers you guys would likely to be to be getting. Um, are, those, are those figures starting to come through yet? Are you expecting a big spike after it kicks off when people sort of see what's on offer, similar to the way that perhaps advertisers will see what's on offer once things do kick off? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, We're sitting a touch under 7 million logged in users on 7 Plus at the moment. And we'll see that grow to, we believe, at least 9 million and 10 million by the time Beijing uh, Winter Olympics comes around in February. Um, I think that viewers will be looking for different moments, whether that be in basketball, archery, hockey, 
Um, there'll be so many different options for people to choose from that we might not be showing on the broadcast and it's on their terms what they want to watch. So I think we'll see that grow. Um, there'll be also other content viewed on 7 Plus. Olympics will take the majority of it. Um, but we'll see that audiences, as they get used to being able to access whatever content they watch, we'll start to see fluctuations in different channels that we might not have even been able to predict because there will be these great moments, as we said, that are unscripted. We don't know where they're going to be, but our team are looking for them 24 hours a day, looking for where will the next big thing be and how do we profile that on 7 Plus and also on the broadcast um, and make sure that viewers know where to go for, for what event. Yeah, and we've seen, you know, promotions in the lead up to it. Um, obviously, there are, you know, all those great Olympic moments that people think back of and when they watch and, you know, all they've all been through seven and that sort of thing. Do you think that that sort of creating those moments will be will be harder without having the sorts of crowds that you've seen at normal Olympics normally? I don't think so. And I was talking about this just today, actually. And put yourself in the place of an athlete who's been delayed by a year. Um, They've been training for their whole life to get to an Olympics. Them winning a gold medal or a silver medal or a bronze medal, even making it to a final for a lot of people, that's not going to feel any different for them and the emotion won't be any different. In fact, imagine Kate Campbell winning a gold medal and standing up there and the anthem's playing just for her. Um, what a special moment that will be for her, but also people at home who are supporting her, for her family, for her fans. Um, I, so I don't think so. I actually think it will have a, a different meaning. You see on some sports like rowing, um, cycling, you know, most of them are pretty tight shots anyway, so the crowd doesn't come into it as much and, and the IOC released some more information around crowd noise and how they're bringing um, supporters into the actual event as well uh, virtually which you know will add a different lens to it with the footy um, we had good experience with the AFL last year and having to look at redoing some production um, and how we would broadcast that to Australians with some crowd noise so we've had good experience on that so we've had to be ready and prepared for the potential that there would be no crowds but as I said I don't think that's going to take away from the amazing moments that we're going to see Um, crowd or no crowd people are going to be right behind them and it's going to be just as exciting seeing these great moments unfold yeah I mean from someone in lockdown I'm personally looking forward to it um we did touch on the fact that that Voz will be in play uh, offering insight into that cross-platform delivery I'm just interested to see how you will measure success when it comes to Voz as it's obviously something that's quite new you won't be able to I guess compare to previous Voz numbers also, will you be looking at the linear numbers and comparing them to previous linear numbers? Um, just just interested in, in how that's going to play out on your end. Yeah, so the way that we measure success is have we delivered what we promised to deliver as the first step? Um, and still at the moment, it is very siloed in that you have the broadcast audience and you have the digital audience. Had Voz launched earlier, we may have looked at different success metrics when it comes to cross-platform and deduped reach and frequency. Um, But I think what we're going to see, and I'm a full data nerd, I used to be a media buyer and um, finding insights in audience delivery um, was a big passion point of mine. Um, So I think what we will see with the Voz is some really interesting insights that we didn't know before. Um, We're not pegged to to those, by the way. So in terms of what those cross-platform audiences look like, 
that's we haven't sold off that, if that makes sense. No one's bought a cross-platform. They've still bought it in silo. But we will certainly be looking for opportunities to be able to optimise clients' campaigns depending on where audiences are. Um, I think there's a lot of curiosity out there when it comes to Voz and what we're seeing around consumption behaviour. So we're looking for those nuggets and we'll be sharing those um, from a, call it a program lens, whether it's time slot or event. Um, we'll also be sharing it with um, a large number of clients as well. We'll be providing them reports on what their audiences are doing across broadcast and digital. And I honestly don't know what we'll find. We've seen um, some initial insights on Voz data showing that some dramas, for example, can go, we saw on Home and Away some huge stats around what the BVOD audience is delivering um, on top of what the linear broadcast is. Um, and other on, on other networks as well from a total television perspective. We do know, though, that live sport is very much a live proposition. Um, so it will be interesting to see what the combined live audiences are, total reach across broadcast and digital. Um, in the past, we've had to add them together essentially, but now we'll get a, an even more robust data set, which is um, we can't wait to see the first report that we get. Yeah, and just off the back of that, um, in 2020, we obviously saw big numbers on both linear TV and BVOD, especially during lockdowns. Are you perhaps preparing for higher numbers than you were anticipating with the likelihood that one or more capital cities in Australia will likely be in lockdown for some, if not the entire duration of the Games? Yes. Um, I think what we'll see is a similar pattern to last year where audiences are looking for entertainment. Um, They're looking for up-to-date news. Sport delivers both of those in terms of entertainment and it is newsworthy. It's a There'll be cultural conversation happening over that period. So absolutely, I think we're going to see some really strong audiences, which is a good um, story for, for television as a whole. It's a great story for CTV because we'll see people at home all day, productivity potentially at an all-time low except at the Seven Network where we'll be working very hard. <laughs> um, but we'll see a lot of people will have multiple screens on and they'll be watching the Olympics and they'll be making sure they don't miss any of those golden moments. Definitely. And just before I let you go, um, Seven's obviously got a big slate lined up for the rest of 2021 as well. Uh, do you expect perhaps with the, looking at the numbers from Voz and, and, and with advertisers uh, being part of the Olympics, seeing what the Seven ecosystem can deliver them, that some might perhaps stay around for the rest of the year? Yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, as I said, convergence is a very big um, priority for our business. So looking at the insights that we'll get throughout Tokyo, which um, from a broadcast and digital perspective, will enable us to plan better with our clients beyond the event. Um, and from a major sporting event perspective, we've got the AFL finals that come out um, after the Olympics. We've got um, the summer of cricket with the Ashes, which will be huge. So, of course, we'll be looking to continue the, that partnership with our clients and make sure that we can deliver them amazing results. Uh, we know that brands that invest in big event television like this get fantastic results for their business. So we're very much focused on that to begin with um, and then how we continue that success for them way beyond the closing ceremony. Yeah, brilliant. Well, Nat, Harvey, thank you so much for joining us on the Mumbrella Cast today. It was great to chat with you. Thanks. So as we've just heard, it's been a big week for Seven kicking off last weekend with reports that British far-right commentator Katie Hopkins was in quarantine in Sydney ahead of appearing on Big Brother VIP. 
uh, or she was quarantining in her own uh, special way, which included flouting uh, many regulations. Ben Shepherd wrote an interesting piece uh, on Mumbrella outlining the potential gains and losses Seven may have considered enlisting Hopkins. Uh, check that out. That's called The Trouble with Katie Hopkins and why the situation was always a guaranteed loss. Xander, uh, Hopkins was instructed by Border Force to hop back on a plane and go back to the UK. She's no longer in Australia. Uh, what did Seven have to say about the trouble with Katie Hopkins? Not a lot, uh, which I guess isn't a huge surprise. So to start with, Seven didn't actually confirm that Hopkins was ever going to be a part of Big Brother VIP. They only confirmed that she wouldn't be, um, but that was after um, the process of Border Force uh, getting her out of the country was already underway. What we do know is that Seven is bringing back Big Brother VIP after 19 years to, to air in Australia again. Um, and the first guest that we saw reported in in the tabloids uh, reportedly coming on the show was Caitlyn Jenner, who herself is in hotel quarantine. And but then when the when news or reporting of Katie Hopkins being on the show uh, broke, the public backlash was pretty swift. And and as you mentioned there, she sort of brought it on herself, posting videos where she called COVID lockdowns a host. From watching the Minister for Home Affairs, Karen Andrews, speaking with with ABC News 24 about the decision to to deport Hopkins, um, she alluded to the fact that that whoever had brought Hopkins over in this situation, we presume seven, um, had worked with a state government to get her over here, and that she'd been brought over for for the economic benefit of the country, um, which actually means that that her spot on a plane coming over to Australia wouldn't have been taken away by someone who wanted to be a, a return traveller otherwise. As you heard there, I did ask Nat Harvey about it. Um, and to be fair to her, she did answer the question, but but pretty much just sort of said briefly that she didn't believe that it will have really any impact on Seven's advertisers or sponsors at this point in time. Um, but but there's no doubting that it's the latest in a string of bad publicity for Seven after the network was uh, forced to apologise last week over a social media post following the Euro 2020 football tournament, which was seen by the general public and, and football community in particular as racist. Yeah, Tim, let's get your opinion on that one. How damaging has all of this been for Seven? Well, one thing I was thinking is Seven is really lucky that Hopkins went off script during the quarantine, which gave them the face-saving way of sending her home because they supposedly didn't agree with her not taking quarantine seriously. Whereas if it had got to the point where she was announced for the show and it was in production when the Australian public discovered that she was here in Australia and the backlash had began then and the pressure on the advertisers had begun then, um, it would have been an even bigger disaster for Seven because there would have been organised boycotts of the advertisers. You know, we've, we've, we've seen that happen quite effectively with far-right characters before um, and that's what she is. They they had a, a really humiliating couple of days, but they dodged the bigger bullet because I, I you know I, I you know I think Nat's point is probably true is they probably have got away with it this time without it actually having a major effect on the advertisers. But equally for Seven's brand, you know they, you know something I argued in Best of the Week last week was the the um, the Facebook post around the players missing the penalties 
there was a kind of understandable reason for the technicalities of how one posts to Facebook that I suspect the intention was not as racist as it looked at the time, or I suspect the intention was not at all racist. But Seven's problem is is a reputational one. You know, they're the they're the network that put Prue McSween uh, on air to make those comments about um, uh, Aboriginal children on Sunrise. They're one of the networks which has given airtime to Pauline Hanson. Um, they're the the network that has flown over the notable racist Katie Hopkins. There is a point where it starts becoming a pattern and it also then becomes a potential brand issue, you know, particularly when you've got 10 positioning itself as we're the woke ones. And everyone kind of joked about that a bit a couple of weeks back when they were doing that. There, there is a danger. It start, They start painting themselves into a corner. And of course, you know, on the one hand, they're trying to be of mainstream Australia, which arguably is a little bit racist. Um, but there is a point where as the world begins to move on, the the the, the brand position sticks. So it 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 seemed like such a, a bad decision. I just even now I can't really work out what the real rationale was. I think it must have just been a failure to understand who Katie Hopkins was. Well, the Olympics has started this week. Maybe that can help uh, Seven uh, recover a, a bit of um, of their brand reputation. Xander, the the coverage has begun. How's Seven going in terms of the the ratings and what they're showing audiences? Yeah, so I started my own experience uh, with the Olympics this year by tuning into Seven yesterday to attempt to watch the USA women's football team play against Sweden at 7.30, but finding that it wasn't on Channel 7, I then downloaded 7 Plus, um, which I'm sure they won't be happy that I didn't already have it. Uh, I found the app to be an overall pretty good experience. The layout is decent without being amazing, and and I wouldn't say that it's up to the standard of some of the global SVOD services in terms of user experience. Um, I did also have a few issues with the casting function throughout the night um, where it wasn't communicating properly with my Google Chromecast. Um, I'm not sure which part of the technology was responsible for that, but overall, it was a good experience, and later in the night, um, there was some great coverage of the Matildas game against New Zealand. Um, They've got Fox Sports commentator Brenton Speed on, on board to call those games. So that was quite good. And then the ratings were in this morning. So Seven will be, you know, pretty pleased by the linear ratings. An average of 635,000 Metro viewers watched the coverage on on Channel 7, on the linear channel after the Farmer Wants a Wife finale happened. And so that was ahead of the likes of Nine's Travel Guides and and Ten's The Bachelor, which had really a truly terrible start to the season. Uh, But that's a story for another day. Um, And then on the Seven Plus side, uh, Seven reported this morning that it had set a new record for streaming minutes on the platform yesterday with 45.9 million streaming minutes. I'm personally quite looking forward to getting the Voz numbers when they start coming out tomorrow, even if it is the seven-day consolidated numbers, uh, because it is hard for us as the media to really put those sorts of figures that the networks come out in a bit of perspective. And Xander, um, question, I, I, I watched the Matildas game as well. Now, I must admit, I, I, I didn't tune in with intent because... I knew it was going to be on. I just happened to switch across just at the right moment it was starting. And the weird thing for me was it felt so flat with no uh, no audience allowed, obviously, in terms of crowds. I wondered whether it just affected the commentary team a bit because it like the, the lack of excitement in their voices, 
I actually found myself going online to check whether I actually was watching something live or not, or whether in fact was highlights that was predetermined. Um, so I, I, I wonder how Seven is actually going to go with um, injecting some excitement into what should be the most ex- exciting sporting spectacle of all. Yeah, you pick up on an interesting point there, and I think that's that um, guys like Brenton Speed and, and the other Fox Sports commentators throughout this season have largely called A-League games with crowds there. Yes, they did do some games last year towards the back end of the season without crowds, um, but but commentators across a lot of other platforms like Optus Sport and, and and others covering international games where a lot of lot of competitions took place last year without crowds at all, um, perhaps have more practice at, at, at sort of making it sound more exciting. But yeah, it'll be really interesting to see um, you know what they do there and 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 I think perhaps for the for the layperson who who doesn't consume a lot of sport, I think it will impact them more. For someone like myself that watches, you know, religiously a lot of football, I've watched a lot of football over the last twelve to eighteen months without crowds, so I'm sort of immune to to that aspect of it. Um, but but as we heard just before when I spoke with Nat Harvey, they at seven don't believe it will have any impact. There not being crowds, I think only time will tell to see if that's true. Tim, Seven's uh, commitment to the Olympics going past uh, Tokyo 2020, which is now in 21. We've got 22 coming up next with Beijing. Well, it's quite unusual that we don't know who will broadcast the next Summer Olympics. So it's not that long ago since Seven exercised its rights to uh, broadcast the Winter Olympics in Beijing 2022. But they haven't said yet whether they're going to extend their contract to Paris 2024, which is their right under the previous deal, but they haven't exercised it. So I wonder if they're maybe just holding it back so that they can make more of it at the end of the Olympics, so it can be one last big bang. Or I wonder if they're going to wait and see how it goes. But obviously it's a, it's a trickier decision because, you know, Paris is not a great time zone. You know, we're, we're in a great time time zone for Tokyo at the moment. Beijing will be a pretty good time zone as well. But Paris 2024, not so much. So it will be fascinating to see whether Seven dares give up the right. Tell you what, it'll be a great time zone. That'll be Brisbane 32. So let's uh, see how that one goes as well, way down the track. But that is it for this week. Before we go, though... Mumbrella's Travel Marketing Summit returns to Sydney on October 28th. Senior marketing leaders in travel and tourism will hit the stage to share their insights as they look to new opportunities and the return of old ones. The first names on the lineup include Tourism Australia, TBWA Sydney, Urban List, and Digitas Australia. Don't miss the chance to network with your travel marketing counterparts and hear from those who are at the front of the recovery effort. Go to mumbrella.com.au forward slash travel for more information. That's it for this week, though. Liv, Zander, Tim, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Damien. Thank Thanks, Damo.